This is a special Enlightenment Day talk by Joel, titled, Enlightenment, A Thirteen-Year Perspective, recorded August 4th, 1996, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Well, this morning, we are celebrating Enlightenment, and what we're really celebrating is the potential that all human beings have for Enlightenment. Sometimes it's called uh, moksha in the Hindu tradition, marifa in the Sufi tradition. Uh, gnosis is the word I like to use because, again, it carries little uh, baggage. There are uh, the word gnosis or gnostics is applied to a certain historical uh, movement in early Christianity, some of whom were true gnostics and some of whom were uh, not. We don't really know that much about it, but I don't mean by the word gnosis, I don't mean, uh, or Gnostics, to uh, indicate that group of people. But gnosis is an ancient Greek word used by Plato and was the word that's used in the original Gospels uh, for this sort of knowledge that means a direct immediate realization of reality or divinity. When Jesus says, know the truth and it shall make you free, in the original Gospel that word is gnosis, and it's distinguished from uh, discursive knowledge and intellectual knowledge and experiential knowledge and other forms of knowledge. So anyway, we're using today to celebrate uh, enlightenment in general, the potential in every human being, and we pick this date because it's more or less close to the day of my own Gnostic awakening, which was August 13th, 1983. And for me, uh, this particular year, you might say, is a double anniversary. First of all, it's been 13 years since uh, 1983, since my own awakening. And 13 has been always a very important number in my life. For instance, in terms of age, when I was 13 years old, I lost the God of my youth. I'd been growing up in an Episcopal uh, school. I'd been sent to an Episcopal uh, grade school, and I, for a while, was very religious. And then I discovered, uh, oh, people like Bertrand Russell why I'm not a Christian and so forth. And so I thought so this is all superstition and I became an atheist. So that was a big turning point in my life. Uh, then at age 26, I went to Vietnam. That's a multiple of 13. And Vietnam was another big, big turning point in my life. And then at age 39, I had this dream in which uh, Athena appeared to me. And this was the beginning of my spiritual path. So this is another multiple of 13. So the, the number 13, and just in terms of my age, has been always uh, a rather significant number. Uh, on my spiritual path, at one point, uh, I was studying a, uh, one version of the Kabbalist Tree of Life being explained by Stefan Heller, who was the teacher I had at the time. And on the Tree of Life, there are various paths that go to various stations that represent various states and of realization and so forth. And the one that goes up the center is the 13th path. And it's the path from um, Tepereth, I think it's pronounced Tepereth, to Kether. Kether's the crown, Tepereth is the heart. And at the time, I identified this as my path. Stefan Heller himself wrote about it. He said, it's the most perilous, but also the most beautiful and mysterious. And I can vouch for that. But in any case, if you wanted to give a Kabbalist interpretation of my path, you'd call it the 13th path. And then, of course, the 13th of August was the uh, actual date of my enlightenment. So this number 13 keeps cropping up in my life, and now it's been 13 years since then. Then it's also the 10th anniversary of my career, if you like, as a teacher. It was in 1986 that I gave my first public teachings at the Bodhi Tree Bookstore, uh, where I was working at the time. And it was also in 1986 that Amit Goswami and his wife Maggie uh, invited me to come to Eugene and uh, establish with them the Center for Sacred Sciences. So the Center for Sacred Sciences really got established in 1986. We didn't become officially incorporated until 1987, but we had already decided on the name, and I had already moved up here. And so this is a 10-year anniversary, if you like, of the Center for Sacred Sciences as well. So I thought I'd take this opportunity to give a kind of State of the Union report, if you like. <laughs> uh, and I thought I'd address three areas. Uh, one is uh, personal, my personal life, 
which uh, those of you who know me know I don't usually talk about, but I make an exception on Enlightenment Day. Then I thought I would talk about uh, what I've learned as a teacher. And finally, I thought I'd talk about my work as a prophet, and I'll explain what that means later. So let's begin with uh, my personal life. What's happened to me uh, since I started on a spiritual path? Well, now, I want to warn you this morning, I'm not going to try and talk technically. You know, whenever mystics uh, start talking loosely, they get into trouble because everything is a paradox. But I'm, not, I'm going to just talk loosely uh, and uh, try and give you a more personal uh, um, impression of these things rather than try and be philosophical and very precise. But we may uh, later run into some problems along those lines. But anyway, one of my favorite descriptions of this whole mystical process is given uh, by the Sufis, and they say, the journey to God has an end, but the journey in God has no end. And I think it's a very uh, apt way of putting this. So what is the journey to God? The journey to God is the spiritual path, which ends in Gnosis. And looking back on my life uh, in general, I had uh, quite an exciting life, actually. I had a lot of adventures in life. I started off as a teenager, uh, aspiring anyway to be a beatnik poet. And so I was kind of a rebel in my teenage years. I'd, I'd leave school and I'd run off and I'd hang out in these coffee houses where Allen Ginsberg and people like that read beat poetry. And, uh, and so that was kind of exciting. And then uh, uh, later, as a young man, I became a soldier and went to Vietnam. And that was, I have to say, exciting, not necessarily uh, pleasant, but exciting. And then after I got back, I spent some time as a Maoist revolutionary. Uh, and that was very exciting, you know, being wiretapped by the FBI, <coughs> always on the verge of getting arrested. And uh, I went to China on a, on a surreptitious trip where we had to go to Canada first, trying to avoid the, the eyes of the FBI. I'm sure they... Uh, knew everything about it. But anyway, it was, it was uh, very exciting. And then finally, uh, I got disillusioned with that, and I moved to Hollywood, and I became a, uh, an associate producer and executive in Hollywood. And for a while, that was very exciting, too. I started making a lot of money and leading what I thought at the time was a rich and glamorous life. And, but my final career was then on a, going on a spiritual path, which I say began when I was about 19, uh, 39. And this was the most exciting adventure of them all, frankly. Uh, it was, uh, it requires far more creativity than being any sort of beat poet. And I, by the way, was not a very good beat poet. Uh, but it really, you have to bring an enormous amount of yourself to a, a spiritual path. It's far more awesome than war. And I've always said the, the true answer to war is, is uh, spirituality. It's the only thing that matches it in terms of excitement. You know, there, there's an element of that. Uh, young men particularly get bored with life. They want some great adventure. But a spiritual path, in my experience anyway, was far more exciting than even war. It's certainly more revolutionary than any political or social revolution because it's a revolution of your heart. It's a revolution of the soul. It's an inward revolution. And it was far more ultimately pleasurable than any sort of pleasures you can get leading a glamorous uh, worldly life in Hollywood or anywhere else. Uh, it's really a inner journey, and I've always liked to travel, but the spiritual path is a, uh, an inner journey that takes you to the core of yourself. And it involves peeling away layers of who you think you are and uh, jettisoning all the excess baggage and stripping down until you're really utterly naked to find out who you truly are under uh, all this memories and thoughts and history and uh, bodies and whatever you think you are. It was uh, wonderful. It was terrifying at times. It was full of tears and joy. <clears throat> And for me, it all ended in a, a motel room in Sheldon, Washington, as I said, on August 13th, 1983, with the wonder of wonders, which is Gnosis. And if you're interested in reading more about that part of my life, the, the, the journey to God, I've written this book called Naked Through the Gate. It's in the library. You can check it out. You don't even have to buy it. But what about the journey in God? 
what's happened since then. Well, this is far more, more difficult to describe, uh, partly because of these paradoxes that occur, but again, I said I, I'm going to try not to be technical here. But uh, in the early days of the center, uh, one of my students once asked me, how did this experience of gnosis change your life? And it occurred to me that the very question uh, betrays a total misunderstanding, really, of what's going on, what gnosis is and what it's about. To begin with, it's not an experience, and this is something that um, people often think. They either think it's a change in worldview, like you have a certain worldview, you're a materialist, and then you get a new worldview, maybe a quantum worldview or something. It's not a change in worldview, although on a spiritual path, your worldview will probably change. Uh, what should happen on a spiritual path is you should start regarding all worldviews rather gingerly, that none of them actually contain the truth. They're very useful, and they're absolutely necessary for uh, human social life, but they do not contain the truth. So Gnosis is not about a new worldview. It's not some intellectual, philosophical understanding. It's something that transcends thought altogether. But it's also not an experience in the sense that all experiences come and go. Any experience you have, no matter how blissful, is ephemeral. It's impermanent. It comes and goes. Every Gnostic can point to a, a, a date, an experience, so to speak, where there's this awakening happens, but the awakening itself is not an experience. So, uh, what is it? It's also, what Gnosis does is destroys this experience of my life. So the question, how did it change your life, is a, a, a question uh, asked from the point of view of someone who thinks they have a life. And what awakening, very simply, you could say, is to realize you don't have a life. There is no you in, in this life. It's the realization that this center, the I, the ego, the soul, whatever you want to think of it, that, that uh, we experience under delusion as sort of the center of the whole cosmos, really, if you think about it, you, you, you regard yourself as the center of the cosmos, everything relates to that, does not truly exist. It's fictional. It's imaginary. It's not that there aren't thoughts about that. It's certainly uh, uh, useful in the language. If we didn't have the pronoun I and, and so forth, we'd be very confused, you know. As I often say, if if uh, we all were named I and I said, I'm going to get some tea, everybody would jump up and run in there to get tea. So it's not that it isn't useful, but we should not be fooled by our own language, our own thoughts, our own imagination. So in a certain sense, it could say that nothing's happened to me since Gnosis. Because there's no me for anything to happen to. And that would be uh, true. Uh, once I, I was giving a, um, a talk down in Palo Alto, I gave actually a little mini retreat, a three-day retreat. And at the end of the retreat, uh, we were talking about uh, Gnosis and enlightenment and so forth. And there was one guy who was very upset that I claimed I was enlightened. And I said, well, you don't understand. I'm not I, it's not that I'm enlightened. I said, what enlightenment means is I'm nothing. Well, he got very upset about that. So you, you can't be nothing. And, and I, a couple of years ago, I used to work at a paint factory down the street, you know, and I said, you know, if I told the guys the paint factory, I'm nothing, they would have said, oh, Joel, don't be so hard on yourself. You got good quality. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't please everybody. <laughs> but anyway, a description like this tends to give a false impression that this is some sort of static state. And I think this is a big misconception that spiritual seekers have, certainly one that I had on a spiritual path, that you arrive at some state and then nothing changes. And this is not true at all because Gnosis, just like it's not an experience, is not any state. Because all states are ephemeral. They come and go. So it'd be closer to say that Gnosis is really like a space or the realization of that space in which everything is arising and passing away, including states and experiences and everything else. Uh, this is the Buddhist description of uh, emptiness. Uh, the, the ultimate reality is emptiness, is really what it means. And they, a lot of metaphors they use have to do with like the sky, the way the sky is empty. So uh, the, the reason you can have weather and clouds and storms and lightning is because the sky is empty. If the sky was solid, none of this could happen. 
in uh, other traditions, uh, in uh, uh, Christian tradition, for instance, God, according to the mystics, is nothing. Meister Eckhart says God is nothing. This is the same idea, this emptiness, that there's, God is not a thing. Uh, the Tibetans say enlightenment is abiding in non-abiding, which is a nice way to put this. Nowhere to abide. Not, having, not finding some place to abide, but it's non-abiding. In the, uh, almost exactly the same uh, ideas communicated by Ibn Arabi, who is a great Sufi, who says, Gnosis is the station of no station. So it's like traveling on a train, and you know you pass through one station after another and after another, and you think you're going to get to Brewster at the end of the line, and when you get to the end of the line, you realize that there is no end of the line, you're the train, so to speak. This space, however, is not a vacuum, and there's a danger then when we describe this uh, uh, gnosis as realization of space. And then people think of emptiness, like the, the Buddhist term emptiness. They think of, you know, a vacuum, a physical vacuum. And so it's perhaps the word, that, anyway, the word that I like best is this is the emptiness, the space of consciousness itself. And one of the uh, one of the inquiries you can make on a spiritual path is to investigate what is consciousness, what truly is it, not what you think about it, because we have all these ideas that consciousness is some sort of cloud, you know, around our head or something like that. But uh, ask uh, yourself, and then test in your own experience, what, what color is consciousness? Does it have any particular color? Does it have any particular form? Any particular shape? Does it have any weight? You see, it's empty of any attribute. And yet, it's not a, a zero oblivion nothingness, you know, the way materialists envision death. That, well, it's just going to be an absolute blank. The Buddhists uh, often describe this uh, as a, a pristine or primal awareness that has these qualities of emptiness and clarity. And the clarity is the important part. The clarity meaning uh, this this almost intangible kind of knowing. Not an intellectual knowing, but look, we just all perceive. There's perception, let's put it that way. It's not so much we perceive. Awareness, words like that. We take consciousness completely for granted, but if you start to investigate, it's very, very mysterious. And that's a big clue to uh, what Gnosis is about, what the realization is. Consciousness uh, is the ground of all this that arises. It's the space in which all this arises. You could say that um, everything that arises is a form of consciousness. If you try to separate uh, anything that appears, whether it's visual or a sound or something, from consciousness, you can't do it. Again, in your head, you can imagine a tree falling in the forest and, and a sound going on. But in your own experience, you'll never experience anything without consciousness. They are completely uh, bound together. All, of, all these forms are really nothing but forms of consciousness. And again, these are, uh, these are ways of describing this, but they are also instructions for you to go look for yourself. Our imagination uh, breaks up the world into forms and consciousness, a, a, a cognizer and something cognized, a knower and something known. But when we actually, in our own experience, try to pull these apart, separate them, we can't. It's often described in the traditions like uh, the ocean and waves. Our, our language separates them. We talk about the ocean and we talk about waves. But actually, there are no waves without oceans, and waves are waves of the ocean. There is no difference. So one of the uh, fruits, if you like, of uh, the Gnostic realization is to see, to experience, uh, to know this seamless beauty uh, uh, and oneness of the world, the, the unity of all this. It's not a change in the content of consciousness, as my teacher, Dr. Wolf, said. And when I was on my spiritual path, I always thought it was going to be like, well, sort of this, 
visually even, this world would sort of disappear and I'd see, I don't know, Plato's archetypal forms behind it or something <laughs> like that. It's a realization of something that's absolutely obvious and right before your eyes. And that both the Buddhists and Hindus have a wonderful expression. They say it's like the, a, a fruit held in the palm of the hand. Is that obvious? One of my favorite uh, ways of describing this is to uh, point to the story called The Purloined Letter, written by Edgar Allan Poe. And it's the story of a detective who's searching for this, uh, this stolen letter. And uh, he, he goes to, with his men, he goes to the suspect's house when the suspect isn't there, and he, he rips the house apart. He searches every place he could possibly think this guy could hide the letter. You know, he takes apart the bedposts, see if they're hollowed out and whatnot. And then he can't find the letter, but he knows it's in that house, so he tells this friend of his, who's a, I don't know, an ex-detective or something, and the guy says, oh, I can find it easy. And he walks in the house, and he walks right up to the desk, the guy's desk, with the papers lying around, and it's lying right there on the desk, you know, uh, with the rest of the papers, because that's the last place anybody would think to look. And Gnosis is very much like that. Reality is very much like that. It's the last place you'd think to look, but it's right there. It's very obvious. I had, when I was about eight years old, a, a Gnostic flash, a, a glimpse of this. And I'll tell you this story, because maybe it can communicate something of what this change is like. Uh, this was the time when I was in this Episcopal uh, grade school, and uh, I took the teachings very literally. You know, they said we're all children of God, and so I was the Son of God, and so I started doing what the Son of God does, you know, what Jesus did. He, he uh, gives out wine and bread to his disciples, so I'd take my mother's wine and some Wonder Bread and break it up and give it to these kids and all that. Well, everybody got very upset with this, you know, it's like <coughs> blasphemy, let alone these kids drinking wine. And I was discouraged mightily from this. But for a time, you know, I, uh, people asked me, I said, yes, I'm the son of God. And I didn't mean it as something special. I mean, I didn't think anybody else, you know, they, you're all the son of God. Uh, but I took it very literally and very uh, seriously. And this one friend of mine asked me, he said, are you really the son of God? You know, we're eight years old. And I said, yes. <laughs> I said, I'll prove it to you. I'll take you to heaven and I'll show you heaven. So, yeah, okay. So we went up to my mother's room, and she had this big carpet that looked vaguely like a Persian carpet. It was magic carpet. Now, all this is just occurring to me at the time. I don't know where it's coming from, but we sit down in the magic carpet, and we close our eyes, and we sit there for about, I don't know, a minute or so. How long can eight-year-olds sit still? And we open our eyes, and uh, sure enough, we're in heaven. And I lived in a two-story brownstone in New York with a basement. And we started going through the house and looking at everything. And it was just all absolutely gorgeous. It was awesome. And we went through, you know, looked at the lamp, and I don't know, looked at a little ashtray here in the books, went down through the whole house, even down to the basement, which was hell, because in the basement they had an old uh, coal-burning uh, furnace, but even hell was gorgeous, you know. And we got through, and we both, we must have spent an hour doing this, or two hours. And we were both in just awe, absolute awe. And then we finally, we came back up and we got on our magic carpet and we came back to this world. And I don't know why we ever came back. <laughs> Wasted about 40 years there or something. <laughs> Dumb. I think he had the same experience too. He never asked me again if I was the son of God. <laughs> But the point of the story, really, is, you see, there's no change in the content of consciousness. But there's an absolute shift in the way everything is experienced. Not, not unexperienced, but the way everything is experienced. St. John of the Cross uh, talks about this in a little bit more technical terms. He says, And here lies the remarkable delight of this awakening. The soul knows creatures through God and not God through creatures. This amounts to knowing the effects through their cause and not the cause through their effects. Now, let me explain that a little bit. In medieval Christianity, uh, one of the ways uh, you could perform an inquiry was to observe nature, observe the world, and you would uh, then trace back the causes of all the phenomena that arises, and you would logically conclude there had to be a first principle. So this is seeing... 
God or seeing the cause through the effects. In other words, it's not a direct experience of God or anything, but you begin to uh, have the sense that there must be this great intelligence behind all this. This is sometimes called the argument by design. It was very, very common in the Middle Ages. So he says now, the soul knows creatures through God, not God through the creatures. In other words, it's not that you surmise God or infer God from all this appearance and say, well, it's all so beautifully organized, there must be something behind it. It's to know first God and then to see the creatures as what? These forms. And so in my terms, it would be to know uh, consciousness first, to have this uh, always prominent sense that consciousness is the ground and then everything you see arising not as some individual creature or form but as just consciousness itself so you you're seeing direct you're first seeing the direct cause of everything and then you uh, are, are realizing that all this is an effect of that this is also true of one's own forms. I say one's own here. You see, I told you, I'm not going to try and speak too technically, otherwise we'll get all uh, bogged down in, in uh, awkward language. Sensations, thoughts, feelings, impulses, they all continue to arise just as before. I will say there's certain emotions, as I said before, which I call echo emotions, which then cease because they weren't really based on anything real. Loneliness just disappears. It's silly. I mean, there's nobody to be lonely for, no one to be lonely. This is, this is it. You're living in the Garden of Eden. And you all are living in the Garden of Eden. I don't know what you think you're missing here. Um, guilt, things like that. Uh, oh, anxiety in the sense of that worry about what's going to happen in the future. Not that I don't get concerned if Jennifer's out late and she said she's going to be home by 11 o'clock and she's not home. I start thinking, hmm, well, maybe I should call the highway patrol or whatever. But that, that anxiety about life, that existential anxiety, uh, fear of death, uh, those sorts of things vanish. But uh, sorrow, joy, anger, uh, fear, even at a biological level, you know, if uh, a truck suddenly came screaming down the street and headed for the house. The adrenaline rushed through my body, just like yours. So none of that really changes. That's not the point. And a lot of people think, oh, when I'm enlightened, I'm not going to experience any emotion. It's that emotions are no longer a problem. They're no longer a source of suffering. They're a great delight, in fact. And I'd say, actually, uh, I have never experienced, uh, truly experienced emotions before as deeply and purely what they are. Again, the Sufis have a wonderful way of expressing this. They say the heart, everyone's heart, and of course everyone's heart is only one heart, really. The heart is the locus of divine disclosures that never repeat. In other words, what you are is a locus, a space again, a location, and everything that is arising here, everything is a divine disclosure. <clears throat> it's it's in, in those terms, it's God manifesting all its infinite possibilities. And everything is already uh, uh, contained in consciousness, if you like, as a potential. Actually, it's contained as a reality in this world as potential, but I don't want to get off into philosophy. And so this is just all this expression, as the Hindus say, the, the lila, the play of God. And then the, uh, uh, for the Gnostic, the only difference is there's no resistance. And often I've said, you know, at least in my life, all my life I felt like I was driving with the brakes on, kind of, you know, that going through life was always a problem. And it's like suddenly not driving with the brakes on, you're still driving, but suddenly there's this freedom. Uh, the Sufis also say that uh, the Gnostic's heart uh, fluctuates between the two fingers of the all-merciful. Because in Arabic, apparently, the, the word for heart... Oh, you, we have an Arabic speaker. What? Kalb? Kalb has the same root as to fluctuate. The pretty close. Yeah. Yes. So anyway, Ibn Arabi makes a big uh, uh, teaching out of this. 
So the idea is not that the heart is stationary and stands still. You know, we have this image of the Buddha sitting up there and he doesn't move and occasionally he gives the dines to give a teaching or whatever. Uh, but not like that at all. The heart is fluctuating, but the heart is no longer anyone's heart but God's heart fluctuating. So all this is divine disclosure, including emotions and thoughts and sensations and all that. Fluctuating between the two fingers of the all-merciful. Th that is, uh, that what we normally consider good and bad are both the fingers of the all-merciful. It's no longer experiencing life in terms of good and bad. Not that I can't tell if, uh, you know, some wines turn bad and it tastes vinegary or something like that. But it ultimately, you cannot cast life in terms of good and bad. It transcends that. So, uh, in a certain way, it's like really uh, giving your heart away to God and letting God do with whatever he or she wants. Just like we, we say, you know, well, I, I gave my heart away to a human lover. Well, it's like, you know, it's like being done with all that self-concern, self-worry. Just give your heart away and don't worry about it anymore. Sometimes this drives Jennifer nuts because she says, well, where do you want to go to eat tonight? I said, I don't care. You decide. She says, now, come on, come on, tell me. And I have to really think up a preference. <clears throat> Occasionally, I have a preference. I get it, you know, like anybody else. I get a yen for some Italian food. Well, let's go to Italian tonight. I feel like Italian. If Italian food's, uh, the, the restaurant's closed, it's Monday night, doesn't matter. We'll go have Chinese. So it's it's not being uh, attached to this, not seeing the world in terms of that the important thing is getting what you want or what you don't want. Now, some people say, uh, they look at me and say, well, you still have a personality. As though, first of all, there's something wrong with personality. I don't know what's going on in their minds. But they, again, I think it betrays a misperception of enlightenment. It's like that you're not going to have a personality anymore. Uh, well, a personality is nothing but a collection of old habits and preferences and stuff that have built up at least over one lifetime, if not, sorry about that, uh, <laughs> if not many lifetimes. And if you didn't have a personality, there would be no manifestation. You know, even, even these uh, very pure mystics, for instance, in India, who live a life that imitates this image, this ideal, uh, had personalities. Ramana Maharshi had a personality. Yeah, he got angry. When he was old, he was ill, and the people who were attending him tried to slip on an extra piece of uh, mango onto his plate when they were eating. And he saw that, and he got furious. He said, if you're going to give me an extra piece of mango, you have to give everybody around here an extra piece of mango. Then they're all surprised that he got angry, you know. So it's not a question of not uh, uh, having a personality. It's ridiculous. It's a question of even your personality doesn't belong to you. And you say you give it away. One of the things that uh, a thought that occurred to me shortly after my awakening, I said, this is what I've always wanted. I'm perfectly imperfect. I'm, I'm just the way I am, and this is perfect. This is fine. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with any of us. Part of what's wrong with us is we have this image, again, something imaginary, that we want to be something that we aren't. You know, like the oak tree wants to be a Douglas fir. It, it never is going to happen, first of all. And why wouldn't you be happy being an oak tree? Why do you want to be a Douglas fir? There's a story that, um, oh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Ram Das tells about uh, his guru, uh, an Indian guru, and his guru asked him to come back to the United States and teach. And Ram Dass said, oh, no, I, I can't. I, I, I just, I, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough to go teach, you know. So his girl, they were standing up, and his girl looked him up and down and walked around and looked behind his ears and looked all over. He says, I don't see anything wrong with you. <laughs> it's true. It's this imagination. A large part of our sufferings, we think there's something wrong. There's nothing wrong. One of my... Uh, uh, favorite uh, analogies for this is given by Ramana Maharshi, and you find it in other Hindu uh, sources, that the the personality is then becomes like a piece of burnt rope. If you take a piece of rope and you put it over a fire of low coals, it'll burn all the way through, but the ash will still keep the form of the rope. But that rope has no power to bind. It's not that the form disappears, but the power to bind is gone. So that's kind of the experience of personality.
It doesn't bind you anymore. One of my favorite expressions uh, that, that uh, uh, points to this sort of freedom is from Meister Eckhart, a great Christian mystic, who said, let God work, let man be free. And it's wonderful. Why? Why are you all worried about all these things and working so hard? Don't, you're not doing it anyway, so just forget it, drop it. You be free, and you'll see God will take care of everything. And I don't mean that in a simplistic sense. If you go and sit down on the couch and resolve that I'm not going to do anything anymore, you watch, and after a while, you'll see that God will uh, uh, you know, fill up your kidneys, and then God will start moving your legs into the bathroom. <laughs> God will hoist your skirts or unzip your fly, or depending on your you know, dressed and... You can imagine the rest. And then uh, the stomach will start growling, you know, and then uh, God will move you into the kitchen and you'll go in the icebox and you'll rummage around for some bologna or, I don't know, sprouts if you're a vegetarian or whatever. You'll see. You don't have to do a thing. Uh, and I think perhaps that's really the, uh, uh, one of the uh, most common uh, words in one form or another is freedom. Know the truth and it shall make you free. Uh, liberation is the Hindu goal. Emancipation, the Buddhists talk about, is this uh, this tremendous freedom. But some people think Gnosis is about acquiring cities and powers and supernatural powers and clairvoyance and control over the weather and all that. Uh, certain of these mysterious sorts of powers can manifest spontaneously on a spiritual path as a kind of grace. I've had experiences with clairvoyance and tele uh, telepathy and stuff. Uh, I've never, uh, you know, been able to walk through walls, and frankly, I've never seen anybody do it. And uh, just from a relative point of view, I'll believe it when I see it, uh, like any of you. Well, I don't say it's completely beyond the realm of possibility. In fact, quantum mechanics tells us it's not completely beyond the realm of possibility. The probability is is almost uh, zero, but it is actually, from a point of view of physics, your electrons may, uh, all the subatomic particles in your body may suddenly uh, quantum tunnel on the other side of the wall and you could appear there. It's, it's a within the realm of physical possibility. Highly unlikely, I wouldn't count on it. I'd, you know, if you want to leave, I'd go by the door myself, but uh, uh, each to his own. But this really is the ego's dream. Oh, enlightenment, I'm going to have all these powers, I'm going to be invincible, I'm going to be invulnerable. And actually, the reality is quite the contrary. It's really the reverse. It's really to be powerless. It's really to be an absolute slave, an absolute servant. To give up all this pretense that you have any powers whatsoever. And again, as is uh, described in many traditions, as Jesus said, it's to become like a child. And then you're just full of awe and wonder. You're not doing anything. Or the uh, great uh, Taoist text, the Tao Te Ching, to become like a babe before it's even learned to smile, before it even knows what's good and bad. And just completely blank in that sense. The ego part, blank. And then... All this is just there without that interference. Uh, above all, I think for myself, in the most personal way I could say this, it was like coming home. All my life, I somehow always felt like I was in some sense in exile here. You know what I mean? That I didn't really belong. That I was like uh, uh, you know, a kid looking in a, a candy store from the outside. And even uh, in these exciting adventures that I had, there was always some sense that, well, this is all very interesting, but I didn't fully uh, feel like I was participating, completely committed, completely given to that, you know? And it was something like a, a show that, you know, this is very interesting what's going on, and then it would pass, and, and I never felt that I belonged anywhere. And so... I think uh, the most intimate way I could describe this is just like uh, waking up and not only coming home, but find you've actually never left home. You've always been home. There's no place to go. This is home. And I could say wherever I am is home. It doesn't matter to me whether uh, I'm in the country or the city or Mexico or here, whatever. Uh, at the end of a long trip, traveling just like you, I think of that nice bed at the end and I come in here and, you know, 
but it's not that sense of uh, feeling that I don't belong. And so to, uh, the realization is that you belong everywhere. Wherever you are is where you belong. That is your home. So that's a kind of a description of what's happened to me personally, if you like, and later you can ask more questions if you have them. Uh, what have I learned as a teacher in 10 years? First of all, people ask me, why do you teach? I'm a teacher because people ask me to teach. The, after, after my awakening, the only obligation I felt was to write my book, and I wrote an account of it, and I thought, that I'd be done with this now. <laughs> Send that book out to the world, and, you know, it's like a bearing witness, a testimony. And then I'd go get a little job like in the Bodhi tree and, you know, and uh, just spend the rest of my life in, in bliss, you know. And it uh, didn't turn out that way. And uh, you, you might say that if somebody asks you to teach, I said, you're a slave, you're a total slave. You don't have any choice about anything anymore. It's like an offer you can't refuse. I mean, you got to. Then I was at a big disadvantage because if those of you who read my book or know my story, I never had a, a real uh, incarnate teacher that I studied with for five or ten years that I could see how this is done, you know. So, I don't know, I had this, this crazy Athena, this subtle realm teacher, and no, she would just give these little terse commands and never explain anything or, you know. And then I spent some time with uh, Dr. Wolf, but he was 96, 97, basically his teaching days were over, so... Uh, I didn't have a chance to learn. Uh, and Gnosis does not confer any particular teaching skills on you. Again, the Sufis recognize some people are spontaneously enlightened. They don't ever had a teacher or did any practices, and they're called idiots of God. You know, and they dance around Baghdad and stuff, I guess, you know, and they're uh, intoxicated with God, and people recognize this as a genuine enlightenment, but they're not, they're useless for <laughs> teaching anybody anything, you know. Uh, I don't know if that still goes on, but I read stories about that in the past. Um, probably they don't uh, dance around in Baghdad like that in these days. Anyway, uh, I had to learn how to be a teacher. My first thought was this was going to be very easy because it's so obvious. You just point it out to people. See, you just say, look, it's just consciousness. That's all. That's who you are. So, and I can remember the first time I gave a teaching up here, Amit, uh, who was a professor at the university, invited some of his students uh, to come and their friends, and uh, it was a little gathering, about seven or eight people, and I sort of just explained what it all was all about. And they all looked at me, and afterwards they were very polite, said, thank you very much, and they all left, <laughs> scratching their heads. You know. So I, I realized it's going to be a little more difficult. So the next thing I thought, well, then I'll just try to awaken one of these archetypal teachers and people, you know, like Athena from me. Everybody must have an archetypal teacher in them. So in the first year or so, I spent a lot of time giving talks and workshops on archetypes, awakening the archetypes. Jennifer was there. We went down to Lone Pine with, a, what, 15 people or something, and everybody went off to awaken their archetypes. Well, <laughs> I realized after a while, archetypes have their own agenda, you know, they don't just awaken. So that meant this was going to fall on me. I wasn't going to be able to pass this off to some inner teachers. By the way, I do think as you progress on a spiritual path, even if you don't have a dramatic kind of uh, manifestation as I did, you find that inner teacher. You lie on yourself. You find that inner teacher, even if it's not appearing in dreams and so forth. Uh, but for most people, need disciplines, they need practices, inquiry, meditation, morality, devotion, and so forth. So it's digging in for a longer haul here. And again, this was very tough on me because my path was relatively short and I never perfected any of these practices very well. I was only a mediocre meditator and I just begun to, uh, to get in really the practices of morality and what they meant. So uh, I had to go back and hit the books and read about other traditions and how they taught and meditations, and then I had to go do it myself because I try not to give any uh, practices that I haven't, uh, you know, at least experimented with enough to see how they work. And so I had to do a lot of work as a teacher, pulling this stuff together and trying to present it in a way that people could understand and practice and getting feedback, very important, from my students and trying to adjust the practice to their needs and whatnot. And over time, some of these got refined. Just one quick example, we, we have a set of 10 precepts that we work with. We started out with a set of 10 precepts. They were quite different. They were much more general. 
And after about a year of practicing, I realized that, no, they were too general. And real, the value of precepts is that they're very specific. Don't lie, don't steal, don't cheat, you know, things like that, basics. If you have these sort of uh, liberal statements about, uh, you know, uh, not to be prejudiced about anybody of color or their sexual orientation or uh, race or whatever, uh, that's fine, but it's not as practice. It's the very specific, concrete precepts that are most valuable for practice. So at the center here, all of us, including myself, are still learning, still experimenting. But one thing I had discovered is that a student has to bring something to this practice. A teacher can't do it all, thank God. Everyone's different, but most people need a certain balance. They need a balance of theory and practice, you might say, teachings and practice. Uh, some traditions, there's no practices, or some teachers, they just give a teaching, you know, realize. You know, Krishnamurti was a little like that. He didn't believe in any meditation or any, or any morality or anything like that. Just realize, you know, just can, can thought end? Can thought end? Don't you see thought is the past? Thought is what traps you. Can't you go beyond thought? Well, I've met many, many followers of Krishnamurti and they're, they're still reading him and whatnot. He says also, don't have a teacher. They're all reading him and scratching their heads. <laughs> Other traditions, there's no explanation. They just give you practices to do. And that also is dangerous because you, if you have no idea where you're going, you don't know what's valuable in the practice. So most people need a balance of practices. Uh, doing inquiry, you need meditation. If you're really going to do inquiry and get beyond um, conceptual inquiry, you have to learn to calm the mind and so forth. Uh, you need practices of the heart. You need devotional practices. You need to practice love and compassion because if you don't start dissolving this sense of self and selfishness, then you're only going to have very shallow insights, even if you have uh, direct non-conceptual insights. That whole weight of uh, selfishness will just come rushing back in, you know, like the, like the Red Sea when it parted, and just will close in, and so you won't get anywhere. So it's really this opening of the heart and, and, and giving yourself away slowly and piecemeal is very, very important. And I think, though, there are four qualities, I'd say, that you need to be a spiritual seeker, a successful spiritual seeker. You need curiosity. You need to be curious about who you are and what you're doing here. Along with that goes humility, because if you already know who you are and what you're doing here and have no doubts about it, well, nobody can, uh, you know, get anywhere with you. So you have to have a sense of wonder about the world and mystery about the world and real curiosity. You have to have faith. You have to have a dynamic sort of faith. A faith that doesn't just accept the dogma and say, oh, okay, that's, that's true and I'll go off and believe it. But a faith that says, uh, yes, I'll try these practices. Oh, yes, I see how they work. Yes, I'll try more. That deepens and deepens. And you need that faith because you're going to go through periods where you're going to feel totally lost. You're not going to know what's going on. You're going to feel very discouraged. The whole path's going to feel like a disaster. And you need that sense of that uh, real strength, inner strength to, to keep going. Fortunately, you get to a certain point where you can't go back. And then you're safe, even though you're in hell, but you're safe. Uh, you need effort or enthusiasm, or a willingness to, to do here, you know. I always say you, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. So if you have, you're exposed to these teachings, these practices, uh, you know, it's good to have a group to practice with. That helps your discipline, you know. But, you know, you can't uh, wait for the teacher to come to your house and hold your hand every time you want to meditate. You have to do uh, this work yourself. Only you can really walk this path. And the more you get into it, the more you have to do yourself. And then finally, you need real, what, a, a real deep passion for this. There's a wonderful little story about a uh, disciple in India who comes to see his guru, or a guru, and he wants to be his disciple, and he says, you know, will you teach me the spiritual path? So the guru says, come with me. And they go into this river, and the, the guru grabs the disciple, and he plunges him underwater, and he holds his head down. And, uh, you know, 30 seconds, 45 seconds, a minute, and suddenly the disciple starts struggling and thrashing around. And finally, the guru lets him up, and he's gasping for air. And the guru says, when you want enlightenment as much as you wanted that breath of air, come back and see me. Now, 
on a spiritual path, you don't have to have that to begin with. You, most people don't have that to begin with. They're just maybe curious or they're a little unhappy with their lives. They want to make some changes. But ultimately, ultimately, that's where it leads. Ultimately, there has to be that, that growing uh, yearning. There's no reason, however, why uh, anyone, anyone can't attain Gnosis. It is already, actually, your true nature, if you like. In a certain sense, you are already enlightened. You just don't know it. And uh, there are all sorts of uh, differences. As I talked about earlier this morning in terms of the speed with which people move through a spiritual path and these things. They're all really irrelevant. That's Everybody is different. Everybody has their own spiritual speed they go at. It's no point comparing yourself to anybody else. Uh, everybody has this innate capacity. So then let me say finally a few words about what I mean by this word, prophet. I tried to think of another word. It's such a grandiose word. Uh, but I really couldn't think of another word that would do. I tried to think of philosopher. But in our culture, particularly, philosophy means something you think about. It's like something you um, uh, cook up with your mind. So I define a prophet as someone who's guided by visions or events that seem and seem to have a content relevant to the larger community. And let me say very quickly that, uh, first of all, this seem means seems to that person, and also there are many, many failed prophets. So to talk about a uh, prophecy doesn't mean that any of this is going to work out. That's all up to God or history or whatever. But... Things have happened to me in my life that I feel compelled to act on. It's not things I thought of. And I'm very content to leave the results to God. One of the things is that I was never baptized. <coughs> my mother actually had wanted to have me baptized m more for uh, to have records than, than the, she was very religious. She wasn't religious. But she also wanted to leave it up to me because she thought she was quite liberal, and she thought children should make up their own minds about these things. So when I turned 13, you know, she started asking me, now do you, don't you want to be baptized? And I said, no, this I told you earlier. I'd become an atheist. I had no interest in being baptized. So she was quite disappointed by that. But somehow what this meant to me is I escaped ever being initiated into any tradition. And there were times, particularly after my own awakening, when I started teaching, I thought, oh, how much easier, I studied with the Tibetans for a while in, in Los Angeles trying to learn their teachings. Why not I just become a Tibetan? I mean, the teaching's already there. It's all laid out for you, you know? And every time I would be tempted, this fact of my life would prevent me. Somehow I knew I was not supposed to uh, join any particular tradition. This continues, by the way. You know, uh, Jennifer and I went to the Sufi conference down in San Francisco last uh, winter. And I tell you, when those dervishes came out and started doing their whirling dervish, I was ready to get up there and, you know, okay, la ilaha illallah, and, uh, you know, Muhammad's his prophet, let me in, and, you know, <laughs> be done with it, really. But something's always prevented me from this. Uh, those of you who read my book know that uh, and about midway through my spiritual path, I had this kind of vision that, that I was crawling over these ruins, and there... Uh, uh, it was very desolate, and suddenly these little rivulets of water started coming up, and they started all flowing, and they all flowed together. I call it the vision of a thousand springs. And then I took this at the time as a sign that I should go on this little uh, trip to make this video newsletter of all these spiritual communities, and the newsletter would be like this stream, and the communities would be all these little springs, and by making this newsletter, all these uh, communities would feed into this into this one stream, the video. But uh, as often happens, uh, after my spiritual path uh, progressed more and after my own awakening, I began to see all this in a larger context, especially since I started reading these various traditions. And I thought, oh, maybe this is what the vision's about. It's like uh, pulling these uh, the, the, the fundamental principles of these tr traditions together. Toynbee, the great historian, left us a task, and that is to distill out the essence of all these traditions and uh, to, to find the essence and to restate them. And I was always struck and impressed with that. And then I met uh, Amit Goswami, this physicist. I met him in Lone Pine. I had no interest in physics or science before this. And we started uh, talking, and 
uh, he started telling me about quantum mechanics, and I got very interested. And then he invited me up here, and I lived three years up here with him and his wife, and we stayed up many a night until one and two o'clock talking about quantum mechanics and so forth. And I feel like I got this graduate education in the philosophy of quantum mechanics. Not I, I can't do quantum mechanics. I can't do the mathematics. But again, this is something out of the blue. I mean, it's not something I sought for, and it's not something I'm particularly interested in. So what does all this mean, to have all this in your head? And then uh, I also see what other people see uh, all around me. This, this society is decaying. Uh, the old materialist paradigm is in crisis. As a result, the society has no center, no spiritual center even, or no, not, not even any sort of center, a philosophical center, let alone a spiritual center. My uh, immediate prognosis, and this is just my observation, is that uh, I'm very pessimistic about the near future. In the long run, I'm an optimist because uh, always in a situation of crisis, there's great opportunity as well. But it's like that old song, what bad moon rising. I think we're in for some stormy weather, you know. And I don't think that any of the existing spiritual traditions can uh, supply the answer. Whether they're Sufis or Buddhist or Christian or Jewish or whatever. Why? Because they were all developed before science. And it's too much of a wrench to uh, rework them to incorporate science. And any new paradigm, spiritual paradigm, mystical paradigm, has to explain the effectiveness of science. Notice I put it that way, not the other way around. A lot of people want to <coughs> say, well, science proves mysticism. It's nonsense. Science doesn't prove mysticism. Mysticism doesn't need science to prove it. And science changes, you know, every 25 years or so. So any time you have a theory, a scientific theory that proves mysticism, that theory is going to be obsolete anyway. But why is science so effective? And that's something we cannot ignore. Because science has put into our hands, as human beings, this tremendous power. And it's part of this crisis. What are we going to do with this power? And not only do we have the atomic bomb, and, and because the Cold War's over, everybody seems to think that's receded. But, you know, those weapons are out there. The technology's out there. And uh, it's getting easier and easier to build smaller and smaller devices. I don't think we've seen anything yet in, in terms of that. But wait until uh, we start uh, really exploring genetics and how that's going to change. Uh, I mean, our whole this whole way that uh, our race has developed is uh, about to be radically changed by this tremendous power. So you need a worldview in which science fits when you can understand science and then you can become responsible for it. So uh, all these ingredients go into this other work that I do is aside from being a one-to-one -one teacher or a teacher with groups, and that is what I call this prophetic work. And I said I call it prophetic because it's not like I sit down and I think up these things. It's like my thoughts uh, are like homing pigeons, you know. They always come back to this. I can't help it, so to speak. So I'm working, for instance, on a book project now, a long-term book project, hoping to contribute to some understanding of uh, how we can have a worldview, a paradigm that is both grounded on mysticism but also incorporates science. And I say this because, uh, partly because now 10 years have gone by, and this is going more slowly than I would like, and I need a little more time. So in the future, I'm going to try and uh, take a little bit more time to do that. And that means I'm going to ask uh, you, the friends and members of the Center for Sacred Science, to take on a little bit more responsibilities for your own practice and a little bit more responsibility for the Center, if you value it. I don't have any direct proposals to tell you now, but I'm just, uh, you know, telling you the cat's walking around the roof. Uh, you know that old joke. I won't go into that now. But I also want to urge you all to participate in what I call this larger work here. Uh, it's, it's very easy for us to get very ingrown. And it's very easy for us to get very self-centered on our own spiritual practice. And it's true that a spiritual revolution has to begin with your heart, with individuals' hearts. It is not like a political or a social revolution where you uh, have a... Uh, change of government and you legislate, you know, new laws and try to reorganize the economy or anything like that. In fact, we've seen a century where all that's failed uh, horribly. 
But a revolution can happen. It begins in the heart, but we also are in danger of becoming what the Buddhists call solitary realizers. We sort of write the world off and say, well, I can't do anything about it, and so forth. But really, truly speaking, the world is our field of practice. And truly speaking, we are not isolated individuals. We are all connected in this one tapestry. So I urge you to find ways, one-on-one, to get involved with other people uh, in the community or little community uh, groups or whatever. People out there are spiritually hungry. As mentioned before, I listened to some of the Promise Keepers uh, convention yesterday. I was cleaning up the house, getting ready, and I'd run in and turn it on, listen for a while, I was sweeping, you know, and then... And it uh, was amazing, it was quite amazing, and several things that it uh, sort of unintentionally exhibited about our culture. One is this tremendous spiritual hunger. People have an innate spiritual wisdom, and it just uh, it's there already. And it has to be tapped. Somebody comes along, or you read a book, or something happens, it gets awakened. The second thing is uh, how desperate we are in this culture. When the uh, spiritual teaching is about don't batter your wife and provide for your children. This is the lowest level of society can go before it collapses into chaos. To address these issues, the fact that they have to be addressed tells us something about where this society is at. And if you are out in the world, you don't have to wait until you are a Gnostic or some advanced teacher or whatever. You just have to share your own experiences. And people are, will listen. You don't proselytize and go bang on door to door trying to force spirituality down people's throats. But people aren't happy, they're miserable and so forth. And if you can say, well, what you've maybe found <clears throat> a peace and calm through meditation or, or uh, whatever, that's helpful to people. You can teach whatever level you know. And if, if it's something beyond your experience you just read about, just be honest about it. My teacher, Dr. Wolf, was very meticulous about this. He used to speak in this Victorian manner, you know, and if he did not know something directly, he would say, thus I have heard, or thus I have read. He wanted you to make sure that you knew, you know, where the source was coming from, that he was not, uh, you know, passing on something that he heard as something that he'd confirmed in his own experience or whatever. So you don't necessarily have to adopt this manner of speaking. That's his personality. He had a wonderful personality. So... It's one thing to be uh, humble, and it's one thing not to be a overly aggressive and obnoxious and fanatical about your spiritual practice, but the other danger is that you hide it. And I think Jesus said this beautifully. He said, people do not light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick where it gives light to all that are in the house. And in a certain sense, we must all try to be candles to each other in this darkening age. So, anyway, this is uh, the three areas that I wanted to talk about this morning. A personal, my role as a teacher, and what I see from this uh, larger perspective. So, if there are any questions or comments or anything you want to share. Yeah, you stated that everybody has the potential for enlightenment, or everyone is enlightened but doesn't realize it. Um, I wonder if there's a, a, a threat. Would you consider plants to be enlightened? <laughs> and, and is there a, you know, some sort of threshold of, of ability? Or... Well, again, you see, it's a question of consciousness. Now, we don't think of stones, for instance, being conscious. Well, we, that's, that comes from a false understanding of consciousness. We don't have consciousness. Consciousness has us. We appear in consciousness. Stones appear in consciousness. Grass and trees appear in consciousness. So in that sense, they are all forms of enlightenment already. It's just a question of realizing. Now, we're, we're getting into an area that you can only talk about poetically. For instance, in the Quran, it said that everything worships God. 
They have everything, the stars, the, the, the sea, you know, they're all worshiping God. If you think about it at a superficial level, it sounds like, I don't know, sort of superstitious, you know, does that mean that there's, the sea has a mind that's saying secretly that you can't hear saying God is great, God is great, or something like that. It, it doesn't mean that, but from an experiential fact, it's the sea's movement. The sea's sound is its worship. But in a certain sense, the sea doesn't know it. In a certain sense, it does know it, but in another sense, it doesn't. What human beings have is the ability to know that they know. Let's put it that way. So there is something special about human beings. It's like uh, you might say that we are, uh, we are, we have topped everything that we know of in the universe. Maybe there's other creatures out there that, you know, top us. But it's like this unfolding gets deeper and deeper and the, the depths of the knowledge gets richer and richer. In the, again, in the Quran, not in the Quran, but in a hadith, it says, uh, Allah was a treasure who longed to be known. That's why he created this, to be known. So our knowing Allah is actually God's knowing God through this form, if you like. Mm -hmm. So in a certain sense, I would say, you know, it doesn't make much sense to talk about stones becoming enlightened. But on the other hand, that's not to say they're dumb. In a certain sense, they're already enlightened. And in a certain sense, they're better off than we are because they don't know that they're unenlightened either. You see what I mean? So we have a double problem. By, by knowing we can be enlightened also means we know that we or think we aren't enlightened. And the stones avoid all that. So I, I hope that's somewhat of a help. We're getting to areas that are hard to talk about when we bring up questions like that. Yes. Uh, earlier you spoke of having the passion to achieve enlightenment equivalent to struggling for the breath of air. Isn't it just resonated with me in the sense that it seemed to, uh, there's a problem with a, a real attachment to that. Isn't that a sort of a paradoxical situation? The great Sufi poet Hafiz said, it's true that union with God cannot be attained through any effort, but strive, O heart, with all you've got. And in Zen, it said, um, uh, little effort, little Satori. Big effort, big Satori. Or another version is, uh, until the sweat has run down your back, you can't have Satori. These all do express a paradox. The, uh, the paradox of this is not a question of effort at all. In fact, it's just the opposite of effort. But there's a certain judo trick that happens on a spiritual path. And that is... You will find, if you get involved in the subtleties of this, that you will stop trying to make an effort, and you'll be putting in an effort into not making an effort. And then it'll get more and more subtle, and you, and then you even stop, you give up that effort, but that giving up is also a little bit of an effort, you know what I mean? And really what, what it's all about is, and why it's often described ultimately as, uh, as something that happens through grace, is that the effort has to be exhausted. It's not something you can decide, oh, I'm going to give up all effort. You, you know, that already is, is an obstacle. The, the I that's deciding I'm going to give up all effort. The I that's deciding to surrender itself. As long as there's some I there surrendering itself, there's uh, obstruction. But when effort's all exhausted, when you can't think up anything more to do, when everything has absolutely failed, the heavens open up. So in a certain sense, for most people, and not, it's not true in every case, but for most people, um, really, it's better to plunge ahead and exhaust that effort, you know, quickly, right? I mean, why procrastinate? <laughs> well, if there are no other discussion or questions, why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close? And you are welcome to stay and enjoy all those goodies. In fact, this is an order. I command you to eat those cookies, not leave any of them here. Uh, and uh, as uh, Mike mentioned, this is our last Sunday until uh, the Sunday after Labor Day. So some of you I probably won't see until then. Uh, but for the rest of the summer, peace to you all.